0: Welcome to A Great Day for Hockey Talk with your host, Paul Steigerwald. Paul Steigerwald, standing by with his special guest.
1: And let's go down the ladder right now and join him.
0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome once again to It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. This is Paul Steigerwald, and I think this is a very special episode we have for you. We're going to be hearing from Rob Brown and Bob Airy at the same time. Those two were line mates of Mario Lemieux when he recorded 199 points in the 1988-89 season. Wayne Gretzky is the only player to crack the 200-point barrier, and he did it four times. The high watermark for Gretzky was 215 points in the 85-86 season. Mario just came within one point of cracking the 200-point barrier in 76 games that season. Rob Brown, his linemate, scored 49 goals, 115 points, Paul Coffey, who we'll also hear from briefly on this episode of It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk, finished third in the Penguins scoring that year with 113 points as a defenseman. And Bob Airy was fifth. He had 26 goals and 49 points. So those four players played a major role in the Penguins making the playoffs that year. Uh, It was the first time they had made the playoffs in Mario's career. And it was the year that the Penguins had made a change at the top. If you remember, Tony Esposito replaced Eddie Johnston as general manager. And early that season, he was able to go get Tom Barrasso, traded Doug Bodger. So the Penguins had themselves a bona fide number one goaltender for the first time. And it really made a difference. Gene Ubriaco had been brought up from Baltimore to coach the team. Many of the players who were with the Penguins at that time had played for Gene in Baltimore. So they were familiar with him. Phil Bork is one guy who comes to mind. Troy Loney, another who played uh, for Gene Ubriaco. But the Penguins just had a phenomenal power play that year, and uh, they did make the playoffs. They swept the New York Rangers in the first round and then lost in seven games to the Philadelphia Flyers. Rob Brown talks about that because in that series, you may remember, you've seen the video, I'm sure, of Ron Hextall, the goaltender for the Flyers, chasing Robbie Brown around the ice because he didn't like the way he celebrated goals, which was with this windmill waving of his arm when he scored. But Brownie was a real character. He was beloved in Pittsburgh when he came. He had put up some huge numbers in junior. Uh, He was a guy who had phenomenal offensive instincts and uh, knowledge of the game. His father uh, was a general manager, so he had an opportunity to really learn the game every single day of his life from somebody who really knew it well. So without further ado, let's listen to, first of all, Bob and Rob on the phone at the same time. And then you're going to hear a continuation of our conversation with Rob Brown. And also, uh, I want to, uh, you know, intersperse uh, some sound from Mario Lemieux as he talks about that season, the 199-point season, and also Paul Coffey and what his uh, feeling was about how he should play with Mario that year. So um, let's start now with uh, with Rob and Bob. As they reminisce a bit about their days playing with Mario Lemieux in that amazing season 30 years ago, when Mario registered 199 points, won the Art Ross Trophy, but didn't win the heart as MVP. That went to Gretzky, who had gone to Los Angeles
2: that year.
1: Hello, Bibbs. How you doing, buddy?
2: Hey, Brownie. How you doing?
1: <laughs> Fantastic. What the hell is going on here? What are we doing?
2: We're going to just
0: talk about playing with Mario on the year he had 199 points in that team and everything. It
1: was, it was all Brownie and I. I. Well, that's what I was going to say. what is Mario going to go on and talk about playing with Brownie and Bips?
2: Mm-hmm. I know.
1: Brownie, I heard you on uh, on uh, one of the
2: one of the broadcasts there a couple of nights ago. I was telling Steg, you're you're the best in the business. You're awesome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you are. You're great.
0: No, you guys are both good, and I think you both have similar qualities as broadcasters, I think. And it's really, to me uh, – it's probably has something to do with just the fact that you were together for so long as teammates. And uh, I was looking at stats, you guys. Mario leads the team with 85 goals, 114 assists, 199 points. Brownie comes in second with 49 goals, 66 assists, 115 points. Bob Airy is fifth on the team in scoring with 26 goals, 32 assists, 58 points. He's plus 40, second only to Mario Lemieux, who's a plus 41. Bobby kills penalties, Brownie plays the power play, and you guys play together with Mario from day one. So what was that like? I'll start with you, Bob. What was it like being the left winger for Mario and, and knowing that Robbie Brown was on the other side?
2: No, it was a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I don't know. I just uh, – I well, uh, by that point I knew that I – obviously transformed my game into uh, being more of a two-way type guy i knew that the goal scoring wasn't really my forte coming out of junior i thought i could do it just scoring goals but uh, that wasn't going to work so you know it was going to be hard work and uh, and doing things at both ends of the ice so i mean i just felt like playing with those guys that i you know to, to play with them they had to be productive i had to get them the puck and uh and we had, be, had to have that success as a line. So, I mean, that's, that's all I thought today. You just just work hard, mind my P's and Q's, get them the puck, and and, uh, and then, you know, just kind of go to the net and try to create room for, uh, you know, some room for them to work around. That's all I thought about.
0: And, you know, Brownie, the one I think of is that how many times did I hear people say that you had the unique quality of knowing how Mario thought, that you kind of thought on the same level as him, and and therefore that was why you were a good winger for Mario. Is that a legitimate uh, comment, do you think?
1: Well, I think that, I mean, right right now here in Edmonton, we have a, a guy named Ty Raddy playing with Connor McDavid. He can't do the things that Connor does, but he can think like Connor because he was an offensive player in junior. And for me, I came out of junior hockey, and I was very offensive. That was my game. And I went to Pittsburgh, and I obviously didn't have the talent level of Mario, but I understood where I needed to be. I understood when Mario needed the puck, when he didn't. I didn't force it to him. Uh, I had enough self-confidence that I didn't always look to pass. I think a lot of players play with superstars, and they feel that every time the puck's on their stick, they got to move it to that guy right away. And a lot of times that creates problems because you give it to him too early or if you, you force him into a bad situation or a bad position. So uh, I think that I understood the game like Mario did. Um, and obviously playing with him, you could make mistakes and he'd correct them for you. If you give him a bad pass, well, he would turn it into a good pass. And the, the thing that we had, too, and, and and that we, as a line, we complemented each other very well with is uh, I, Mario and I were very offensive-minded and, and thought offense first, but you can only do that and play that way if you have someone at the safety valve. And I think that's where Bobby came in is – he, he he did the dirty work. He was the guy that would become the third guy high. He'd be the guy that could get the puck out into the neutral zone for you to spring it for two on one. The game was a little different back then. You could cheat a little bit more. It wasn't as uh, stringent as nowadays, where you got to be in this spot at this time. And you you can't you can't be on the offensive side. You got to be on the defensive side. But we had a guy that did all the little things right back then that allowed us to cheat a little bit more which certainly created a lot more scoring chances for us. So that's why I think we work so well together. And if I'm correct, and I, I, my memory isn't as good as it used to be, but Bobby had 26 goals. I don't know if he had a power play goal that year. I think it was all five on five, which is incredible if you think about it.
2: Is that true, Bob? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> He's got a good memory. But, uh, you know, that's uh, I killed penalties, of course, and, you know, I just didn't have uh, – it was, you know, there's was not enough ice for me to go on the power play, and they had, we had way too many skilled guys that were a lot more skilled than I was, uh, obviously, that could do it better than I could, stay.
0: Okay, so you also had a guy named Paul Coffey. And I remember, Bob, I heard you say recently that you kind of guys played units of five in those days. So you were almost like a line of four, if I'm not mistaken. I guess Hilly would be the other guy, where Randy Hillier would be the guy who played with Coffey a lot back there on the blue line. But am I correct in saying that that was almost like a foursome out there? <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> leading the rush. <laughs> I, I think so. Hey, eh, Brownie, playing. I I, I I I love playing with Coffee. I grew up watching him. I was from Edmonton, so I watched Paul Coffee and the Oilers in their heyday. And I remember when we we traded for Paul Coffee. I mean, there was a little intimidation factor when he walked in the room for the first time, and then watching him play and understanding uh what his role was and how he played and. And I'm like, this, I watched him skate up the ice like this a million times in Edmonton. And then you get on the ice with him, you see how fast he is. And I'm like, oh, my God, i better to get a head start because I'm not going to be able to catch him. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it was. We did play in groups back then. And having Cough on the ice with us, I mean, it was a secret weapon. Uh, he, just, he, he was uh, so far ahead of his time. And, and I, I know a lot of other players were, were trying to emulate what he could do. But you couldn't with the speed that he had. You know, three strides, he be from the goal line to the blue line already. And now he's got the fear in the eyes of the defenders he's going against because now they're turning and starting to skate backwards, or starting to skate forwards because they're not going to be able to keep up with them going backwards. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, w- it was a perfect storm when everything was going right for us because you had Mario's vision and ability and you had Koff's speed. Uh, it really set the
0: lineup very, very nicely. And, Bob, you you were a guy that had to really mind the back door. I mean, if Koff was taken off, uh, I remember you being a guy who oftentimes was almost playing like a centerman in your own zone, too, because Mario sometimes would be up ice. So you would be playing literally a 200-foot game uh, back in those days and making sure that uh, you were minding the store as well as having to get up ice with your speed that you had to join on the rush when things did turn into offense.
2: Oh, there's no question you know i mean uh yeah i mean you just you you got back there they dumped pucks in and cough uh, you know you might be back first you might not but then you just you just reverse it back behind the net uh, you know tom brasso helped quite a bit he could play the puck so uh, that became another um another ability that the unit had or, or the team had and you could really use tommy brasso in that facet you know he could he could put pucks in the right places and, and you know if you know cough wound it up one way and it was really one, you know, you knew which direction he was going. But did, you know, I think back in that days, in those days, Brownie, you couldn't, even though you knew he was going that way, he was pretty tough to stop. As you mentioned, you take three strides, he winds it up, and then he, I mean, he had the ability to gain all his speed on that turn. And then he, you know, I remember a lot of times you have his. Skates almost in train tracks, but he'd still be flying guys by guys. It didn't even look like he was moving when he went through the neutral zone. Like, he did not move <laughs> his
1: feet, but he was still flying by guys. Like <laughs> It was, it was depressing, too. It was depressing for the rest of us. Like, I would move my feet 100 miles an hour. <laughs> by. It wasn't fair. I know.
0: And then, meanwhile, there's Mario. You guys have a front-row seat for what he's doing, and how would you know not get caught watching the stuff that he did?
1: You know what, there was one time, and I don't know if Bobby remembers, and I don't remember who we were playing against, but it was in the offensive end, and and Mario had the puck, and he goes around one guy, and he's going around a second guy, and he beats them both, and then he looks us off, and he goes and tries to beat a third guy. And at one point, he had all five players on the opposition chasing him, and Bobby and I were in front of the net. At first, we're trying to get open, and then all of a sudden, we're watching him, too, and at one point, five guys are chasing Mario, Bobby just kind of looks at me, smiles, gives me a wink, and we both watch Mario. Eventually, he did pass the puck to us, but it was like everybody <laughs> re- control at watching him and mesmerized at the the ability and what he could do. That you, yeah, as uh, even linemen at times, you got caught got got caught up in the the Mario factor of his ability being so much greater than anyone else on the ice.
2: Did you uh, yeah. ever get? Did he ever get mad at you guys? Uh, but yeah, he'd get mad at me sometimes. I mean, and I don't know if he's so much mad, but he, I mean, he, you know, you can't do what he'd do without being, you know, one of the greatest competitors in the game. And I remember he'd come in after, you know, he'd have six points after two periods or seven points or something. And he wanted, you know, he wanted 10 points. That was one thing he never got that he wanted. He wanted Sittler's record, you know, and he'd be sitting beside me in the stall and, Bear down, Bobby, bear down. But, you know, you, I remember I was telling you, Stagg, when I missed that one chance in Chicago in, the, in that 199-point year, you know. But uh, I'm sure I put a couple in for him. And,
0: uh, you missed the chance. And, and, what are you thinking? I, you you I think you that. cost him the 200? Is that what you're getting at here?
2: Well, like I was saying, I, at least I came back and had two more that game. I felt pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> missed the two on no tap in, though. But hey, Brownie. I mean, I, the thing about Mary was to have that skill, like you know, the great, you know, some of the greatest skill that I'd ever played the game. But then to have the size to go with it. I mean, I don't know. That's just not fair. I don't know how he ever missed on a breakaway. Like he just, the goalies weren't as big back then. And um, when I look back, I, I, I just, uh, I mean, he could just hold the puck like. You know, ten feet to the right side of his body there, and if he didn't like what it uh, what he saw there, he could just bring it across the net, and he'd have a wide open net that way. Or he just he'd open up the five hole and go and go on the forehand. Deke, he had all the moves, he had the size. Um, what didn't he have, Brownie? I mean, you know, I guess when you talk about Mario, it's just you wish his health would have held on all the way through his career because his numbers would be right there with uh, with the Gretzky's.
1: Well, and you said it best. The only thing that he lacks is health. I mean, I, I, I'm from Edmonton. I, I've I've done the other games for 13 years. Like this is Wayne Gretzky country, and I don't know how many events I've done and ask who's the greatest player ever, and, oh, and I I'll know. throw it I'll throw out a Mario, and they I mean <laughs> get food I get booed and yelled, but and I tell these people I said had Mario stayed healthy, the records would all be his simply because he has something that Wayne didn't have. a couple of things, a he had size. I mean, he he would carry guys, literally carry guys on his back. Where I mean, and players could take liberties on Mario that they couldn't take on Wayne just because Mario was so big and strong that he didn't go down. And the other thing is his ability to score. I mean, I know that Gretzky has the record for goals, but Gretzky wasn't as good a pure goal scorer as Mario. Mario never missed on a break when I, I teach kids nowadays. I said, you don't need 30 moves. Mario had three. He'd come down. He'd, with his right-hand shot, he'd go up over the glove. If that wasn't open, if the goalie came out, he'd bring it all the way across and put his backhand yep. in because he's because he had such a long reach. And the other one, he would open up the five-hole and go 5 There you go. And, and those yeah. were his three moves. That's all those were the three. Those were the three, and that's, that's what I said, too.
2: Those three, yeah. I mean, that's and, it. And, Bobby, what was
0: your approach? Go to the Why net. You, you were a go-to-the-net guy. I can remember you, Brownie, you remember Bobby being in the net sometimes, and he'd, he'd be like his skate blades would be, like, tangled up in the twine. He'd have to, like, get himself out of there because he, he would just go right into the net, literally.
1: Oh, I, well,
2: remember that, I, mean, I remember that fight. Yeah, I remember I got in that fight with Glenn Healy, and I got that Rich Pelon beating on my head, and then Brownie and Mario got to get in there and bail me out. but. Yeah, you go to the net. I mean, you have a big paddle. Why not? And then that opens it up for Brownie and, Mar- and Mario. I, mean, I go to the net. You know, they—they they, somebody's got to come with me. And if they don't, Mario just hammers it as hard as he can to that far post. And I just have to basically keep my stick hard on the ice. But, I mean, but it opened up a lot for you guys, I'm sure, out there, Brownie. And, Brownie had that shot. I don't know how. Uh, it, it didn't look like the greatest shot in the world, but it was the greatest shot in the world. Does that make any sense, Brownie? I don't know how you could hit the same spot. It looked like, to me, it looked like it was going, when you shot it, it was going to go glove hand. Somehow you you open up your blade at impact or something. It would go stick side, and the goalie would be looking this way. It would be going that way, and and you and you did it consistently. I know you came in from with big numbers from junior, but, I you know, it didn't. It's amazing. I play with guys in Peterborough like that, that, uh, you know, that I, I just couldn't believe, like in the summer hockey, they go out there and score a million goals, but you were able to do, to um, somehow beat guys regularly one-on-one, coming to the blue line, with the shake and bake that you had. You had the great <laughs> hands to be able to score inside and out. And you're also tough that people didn't know about. You were like the toughest son of a guns that I play with too. And you never back down from anything. So, I mean, it just a, uh, you know, you combine all those kind of things, and uh, did you guys? Re- that's were you why guy- you're a great scorer. You should. Well, you, I, I, still consider you a 50 goal scorer. You score, Browner. I'm sure, you, Brownie, and I'm sure you consider yourself one too. <laughs> well, you had
0: 49, <laughs> Brownie, You had 49 goals in 68 games. Was that the year you hurt your shoulder? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I'm throwing a
1: body check. See, I never should have thrown body checks. I, I know. It, you but I can still in.
0: see it. It was against the Calgary Flames. You went shoulder to shoulder with Jim Paplinski or somebody. Nope. Joe Newenday. Joe Newenday. Joe Newenday, yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah. hit him
1: last time I threw a check my entire career. <laughs> and then I
0: remember you were in the swimming pool, moving the arm up and down in the swimming pool to, to rehab your shoulder.
1: <clears throat> yeah, just, just enough to get back in the game. I don't know if it ever – healed, but as like Bobby's talking about um, with, with shooting and stuff like that, you, you learn with what you have. And that's what – I mean, Bobby and I were smaller players, so you had to uh, adapt. There's things you couldn't and couldn't do. So the things you couldn't do, then you had to excel at other things. And I think that's what I learned is I couldn't do what Mario could do or this guy could do or that guy could do because I didn't have those God-given talents. you got to adapt your game correct, or change your game, fix your game, find a way to make your game successful at the next level. And the players that are capable of doing that are willing to do that Are the players are going to have success. Bobby Erie was a, a very talented offensive hockey player that was put in a different role when he came to Pittsburgh. And some players would have accepted it and some wouldn't have. Bobby accepted, accepted it and ends up being Stanley Cup champion and has a long, long career. But there's, I play with a ton of players that, nope, I don't want to be that kind of player. I was a goal scorer. I'm going to be a goal scorer forever. And then they find themselves out of the league two years later. So you have to have a willingness to be whatever they need you to be. And then excel at that.
0: Were you disappointed, Brownie? That were you guys disappointed that Mario didn't get to 200? I mean, and and also that he didn't win the heart that year. They gave it to Gretzky. You know, even well, though he had 199 the points. The
1: heart, the heart, I was actually, I'm pretty sure the awards that year were in Toronto, and I was in Toronto with a buddy for just a vacation. And I went by the hotel, and I hadn't heard anything to do with the awards, but where the awards are I went by the hotel, and I actually wrote a note and gave it to the people at the front desk and said, can you give this to Mary Lemieux, please, and just put it in his room. And I was, I congratulate him, congratulations on winning the heart, much deserved. And then it was later that night, I found out he didn't win. I'm like, okay, how did he not win? <laughs> he had like one of the greatest seasons ever. I'm like, okay, there's something wrong here. But, yeah, no, I was shocked. That was the year Gretzky
0: went to L.A. That's why he won.
1: Yeah, there, the fix was in.
0: Yeah, and I know you got to go, Brownie, but I want to just ask you one more thing uh, pretty quickly here just about you. You you being the guy you were, you know, Bobby was in fact both of you. I I, I remember Bob Airy was a was the kind of player that uh, the fans thought that he somehow wasn't worthy, you know, to play with Mario. Like it had to be somebody who could score 60 goals. And, and, and with Brownie you know you always had that stigma I remember Pierre Kramer the year before he was the coach saying he I don't know if he can skate well <laughs> enough he's fat you know he, is he fast enough because he came from Montreal he thought everybody should be flying out there so I mean d- you guys kind of had to overcome a little bit of a you know stigma each, each one of you in some way to, to be worthy if you will of playing with Mario and then look what you did I mean you both had great years that year in uh, in 88 89 well
1: I think that first of all, you got to be humble and appreciate where you are, and, and then when you get get the appreciation, then you got to go out and prove. And I think I, I know for me, and I'm sure Bobby expressed early in his career, every time he came to training camp, you had to prove yourself. I mean, there, uh, I was never a player where I could, you know, take the summer off, come to training camp, and say, yeah, I got a spot. I always had to prove every year that I'm capable of playing at that level. So uh, for me, it was just testing myself proving myself and then that's why it was so much more rewarding at season's end when you have a good season it's like yeah i proved a lot of people wrong so uh i i i understand how fortunate i was in my career as a guy that was too small couldn't skate couldn't shoot uh wasn't given the god's gift of a body Yet I was able to somehow make really? it last for. Yeah, I know it's shocking. I know it's shocking. <laughs> um, I was somehow made to play 550 games in the National Hockey League. So uh, I know how fortunate I was, and it's a testament of uh, fortitude, uh, willingness, and being very fortunate of playing with very good people. And I, and in all truth, too, I remember as a rookie sitting on a bus uh, going from the rink. I think back to the hotel, and I'm sitting with Bobby. And we were just talking about looking after ourselves. And Bobby said to me, he said, you know what, you're, you're like me. You're a smaller player. You've got to look after yourself. There's time to do this. There's time to do that. But make sure you look after yourself because you do not want to screw up a, an opportunity because you're not fully prepared. And it was something along those lines that Bobby said to me, and I, and I always remembered it. I didn't always abide by it, but I <laughs> always remembered it. <laughs> And, and it, it meant a lot. And But, no, at the end of the day, I'm very fortunate to have, to have had the opportunity to play with both Bobby and, obviously, with playing with Mario.
0: And, Bobby, uh, you just uh, did what you did. And you were a very, very important part of that line. Maybe, you know, for much of your career, you weren't considered a first-liner, if you will. But you were on the first line of a Pittsburgh Penguins team that racked up a ridiculous number of goals. And you scored 26 of them without ever playing on the power play. And you were a big part of that line. It must have been a great, great thrill.
2: Yeah, I just felt, you know, you know, I got echo Brownie's uh, Brownie's words. I just felt fortunate to to number one be in the NHL. It didn't look like it was going to happen early on, and I know that uh, even the even the organization didn't think I was going to make it, and sent me down twice to the minors. So yeah, it was a case of proving yourself. Never feeling like you were secure at all. I felt every day was a was another chance. Uh, you know somebody was out there to grab your job, especially when you're playing with and Brownie. I mean, yeah they're looking to replace you they can replace you. trust me, like the drop of a hat you know you're either doing the job or you're not. Mario either likes you or doesn't uh you know i I felt I was pretty I could be replaceable pretty easily if they wanted to, but you know we were successful, and we were a plus line. We kept scoring goals. I think we were the only plus guys really on the team of a team that was really full of a lot of players that weren't so we were we were having success on the ice there was no reason to change it and uh you know count my lucky stars that that worked out that year with mario it was i just i was disappointed today when he didn't get uh 200 points but yeah you know, i i don't as a player at that time i don't think about it too much i knew coming down the stretch that he had a shot at it and you know he really wanted to get it you don't think i you know i just i don't know i just go out there and and, and try to do my thing and let things fall where they where they fall but uh it was unfortunate. I don't, you know, those awards are never enter my thought, to be honest with you, when you talk about hearts and, and things like that. Um, you know, I was we were trying to win a Stanley Cup. Uh, that was really the only thing I was thinking about, um, was just trying to win a Stanley Cup. And we finally got to the playoffs. That was a triumph after a lot of trial and tribulation before even Brownie came. And, and, I, and then uh, even when Mary was there, it was a struggle, you know, so – I just wanted to get to the playoffs first, and then hopefully try to win a Stanley Cup from there, because that's what you tried to do as a as a child. That was your you know was your childhood dream to make the NHL and win that Stanley Cup. So, you know, I, I I count myself. I think I I feel that I'm even more fortunate today than I was then. I just looking back at things because you have a chance to, to have perspective on it. And I feel fortunate, feel grateful for to play with great people. Like Brownie's a great person. You can tell what he's doing and. And things that he's been through with his life, with his family. Uh, Mario, the same thing. You know, we're just lucky to be uh, healthy, happy, and doing what we're doing, talking with you here today, Stag. And I, I mean that, all sincereness, you know that. I mean, uh, starting up another season here, and uh, health and happiness for everybody.
0: Thanks a lot, Bobby. And before you guys yep. go, here's a trivia question for you, Brownie. Asked you before we went on the air. Okay. <laughs> Jake, all right. Jay Caulfield leads the team with 285 penalty minutes. Who had the second most penalty minutes on the club?
1: I'd go with Roddy Buskis. I'm going with me.
0: <laughs> That's a good one. Nope. <laughs> <coughs> Paul, Paul Coffey, 195 penalty minutes.
2: 195. What did Brownie have?
0: Brownie had uh, 118. Bobby, you What'd had 124.
2: Oh, it's Bob, pretty good, what? eh, Brownie?
0: We'll continue our conversation with Rob Brown in a moment. But first of all, Mario Lemieux did win uh, the Art Ross Trophy in 88-89 with 199 points, and he had a bonus in his contract if he won the heart, which he should have won. Uh, the league uh, did not award it to him because the writers vote for it. And, of course, Wayne Gretzky was the darling of the media back then, and he had gone to L.A. and made a huge splash with the Kings, so he, he got the heart as MVP. And Mario was supposed to get a bonus for winning the heart, he didn't win it, but he still got the money thanks to Edward J. DeBartolo, the owner of the team.
1: Uh, Mr. DeBartolo was an uh, uh, incredible, uh, special guy um, you know, to play with uh, as an owner. Um, uh, he was very special. One, one thing that happened uh, uh, with me in 89, I think I had 199 points, didn't get um, uh, the MVP. And uh, after that, uh, I got a call from Mr. DiBarlo to go up to Youngstown and, and sit in his office. And uh, at that time, I had a bonus for winning the MVP. But uh, then, and uh, he slid an envelope across his desk and, and gave me the bonus anyway, saying that uh, you know I was his, his MVP and wanted me to get the bonus. So it was very special, man.
0: Mario also credited Paul Coffey with really changing his game. He said that. You know, the the arrival of Coffey in 87 88 enabled Mario to kind of get in behind the defense bore, wait up at center ice for those long passes, and Coffee could spring him for breakaway. So he really gave Coffey a lot of credit. He needed that kind of guy to collaborate with, the guy that Wayne Gretzky had collaborated with in Edmonton. And uh, the two of them were like bread and butter on the ice. It was really fun to watch. Not only, you know, Mario, Rob Brown, Bob Airy, but Paul Coffey, like a, a fourth line mate and uh, and Coffey talks about the great power play that they had. It's true, the Penguins have the record still to this day, 119 power play goals were scored by that 88-89 team. And here's Paul Coffey talking about that time with Mario.
2: Well, we still have, I believe, the most power play goals scored by a team, right? And that's pretty, pretty impressive when you got Malkin, you got Sid, there's more power, power, uh, power plays now. With those great Oilers teams, I mean, for that Pittsburgh team to have that many power play goals was incredible, and we didn't work a lot on it. We just we just went with our instincts. I knew what my job was. My job was to get it up ice, get it in the zone, get it on sixty six to stick, and he'd do his thing. Brownie get his butt to the front of the net, try to get in Hextall's uh, cage, and the rest is history. But we had uh, just talented guys: Artie, Johnny Cullen, you know, Ronnie knows Ronnie wasn't near them, but. The, that group was good.
0: Before we continue our conversation with Rob Brown, just a little background. Uh, he came from Mount West. He played for the Kamloops Blazers in the Western Hockey League, uh, was drafted out of that uh, league by the Penguins in the fourth round. Uh, the year he was drafted, he was taken 67th overall. That was in 1986, and he came right from junior right to the Penguins in his last year with Kamloops. He scored 76 goals, 136 assists, 212 points. He was a prolific offensive player, really a brilliant player uh, in terms of his intellect. He was not a great skater. He was not in the greatest of shape. Uh, We know this, but uh, boy, could he play the game. And he could uh, play it on a level with Mario. He could think the game like Mario, as we talked about. So here's Rob Brown, who did come back to the Penguins later in his career, a second stint with Pittsburgh in the late 90s. Uh, He played under Kevin Constantine, 82 games in 97-98. Another fifty-eight and ninety-eight, ninety-nine, and then fifty and ninety-nine, two thousand, uh, before going back to the minor leagues. Rob Brown, a really interesting guy, and what a pleasure it was to continue our conversation with him. We continue our conversation with Robbie Brown, number forty-four of the Penguins. Back in the days of Double Trouble, when you had Mario sixty-six, Coffee seventy-seven, Brown forty-four, Zarely zalapsky thirty-three. Brownie, uh, how did you end up with forty-four?
1: Um. I, all through my hockey, minor hockey career, I was always number four. I was a huge Bobby Orr fan. I was a defenseman growing up. And when I went to junior, in Kamloops, there was already a veteran with number four. And the coach, Bill LaForge, knew that I was a big number four fan and came to the first game and I wasn't didn't know what to expect number-wise. I was just happy to be there as a 15-year-old kid. And he had a number 44 sweater made up for me, so... Bill LaForge, the coach of the Camels Oilers at that time, was the one that gave me my number and then it stuck with me throughout my career.
0: He was kind of a goon coach, wasn't he, back in the day?
1: <laughs> um, yeah. <it> was, <laughs> uh, he was a little crazy. He was very intimidating, both to uh, opposition teams and to his own players, but I, I, I do remember getting a tap and, uh, when I was 15 and he gave me a nudge. Alright, time to learn how to fight. So I had to go out and fight a guy, so uh, it was a different experience. I remember my very first time going to Camloops. I had longer hair They continued in the NHL, but I went in there and he was on the phone, and my dad and I sat down. We They just brought me up from Bantam hockey, and I'm sitting in his office, He's talking on the phone. He hangs up the phone, stands up, pulls a $20 bill out of his pocket, hands it to me, says, there's a barbershop down the street. Come back when you look like a boy. I'm like, oh, okay. So there's me and my dad walking down the street getting my hair cut, so... I was always scared to death of Bill of Fortune.
0: I could see why. Now, you know, it's interesting that you talk about your looks because you were a guy that kinda, you know, wanted to look a certain way. I mean, you had long hair when you were a penguin too. You had a you know, you had that mullet look that a lot of guys did. But your hair hung out of the back of your helmet and you uh you kinda did things your way, didn't you?
1: <laughs> I did. I don't know if there was any preconceived thoughts on what I was gonna do. I was I was barely laid back uh, away from the rink, and it just sometimes it translated onto the ice as well. But I don't think I put a whole lot of thought into my look. I think that's why I looked the way I did.
0: Brownie, uh, you know, I remember hearing a story, and this kind of gets away from our topic of you know the, the Mario 199-point season, but, uh, you know, you later in life changed your game. You, you were a guy who uh, really had to kind of change your whole image. And I remember hearing stories about how Ken Hitchcock, who you played for, uh, talked about how he had to change his image. And the two of you sort of had a kind of symbiotic relationship in that regard. That you felt like there were th- things you had to do, kind of later in life, to kind of give yourself a different impression. Uh, that there, are, at least, that leave a different impression with other people.
1: Yeah, I, I I eventually went down to the minors and I was playing for Ken Hitchcock in Kalamazoo. And my career was kind of at a, you know, it was on a downward trend. And Hitch had been my junior coach, and he'd always been very close to me, probably outside of my family, probably the biggest hockey influence that I had in my career. And he called me in his office once, and we started talking about just life and talking about the fact that he had to learn how to lose weight uh, if he wanted to make it to the next level. level. And he said that for me, it, it was uh, body language. He said that people come to watch you play, scouts in, in, in different NHL teams, and, and they don't need to watch what you do with the puck. He said your your stats, it shows what you're capable of doing, and they've seen you play a lot, but it's your body language. He said the way you skate from the the dressing room out to the blue line for the National Anthem, the way you stand for the National Anthem, the way you present yourself, the way uh, you react to a call, the way you react to coaching. He those are the things that they're watching. That nobody's worried now about... What you're capable of doing or, cap- or not capable of doing, they want to see your language, your body language, your your attitude, and it was, it was it really like snapped me out. I'm like, oh my goodness, yeah. And then I started thinking about it, and then I started watching videos of it. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. So I I did change. It changed uh, a lot of. That. I changed off ice conditioning. I never was much into that before, and at that point, it wasn't huge as it is today. And I had to reinvent myself as a more of a, a, a two way hockey player. And because of that, it got me three more years in Pittsburgh at the end of my career. So I'm grateful for Hitch sitting me down and explaining to me, you know, the way to carry myself and the way not to.
0: It was amazing the way you played when you came back to Pittsburgh in the late 90s for Kevin Constantine. You became one of the most reliable players on that team, a player that Kevin turned to at the end of games. You were on the ice in the last minute, all those things that maybe you weren't uh, the first time you were with the Penguins.
1: Well, I, I think the biggest thing I, I learned I learned to appreciate the opportunity. I think that I came out of junior hockey and, and came straight into the NHL and I had success early in my career and I, I don't think I really appreciated where I was as much as I should have. It, it just seemed like, Oh, okay, this is a natural progression, you know, junior hockey player, now I'm gonna go play in the NHL and it's the way it's supposed to be. But it, it's not the way that way. There's a lot of junior hockey players that are done when they're 20, 21, 22 years old. So I think that when I came back after spending some years in the minors, I appreciated where I was, and my work ethic was much stronger, and my dedication was much stronger. And it was just a wake-up call being in the minors and realizing where I wanted to be. So when I got back up and had that opportunity, if it meant blocking a shot, if it meant being physical, If it meant having to fight, although it wasn't a a forte of mine, those are the things that I was willing to do to stay up there and get just every every day I went on the exercise, I I want one more game, I want one more game, and it turned into three more years.
0: Awesome. What about uh, your first stint with the Penguins? How would you describe your relationship with the fans at that time?
1: Oh, it was incredible. Uh, For some reason, they took to me, and I, I enjoyed every second of it. I played in a lot of different cities the NHL through the minors and junior hockey but nobody has ever treated me as good as Pittsburgh did and it's funny I to this day my I, my name is Rob except when I'm in Pittsburgh it's Robbie and if I do an interview if I talk to fans if I come back for the the golf tournament it's always Robbie and that's how I'll always be known in Pittsburgh so uh I was very fortunate i think it was two summers ago to come back to Pittsburgh to do um one of the alumni golf tournaments and I brought my son and my son got to witness and be part of what I got to witness and be part of when I was in Pittsburgh. And he got to interact with fans and interact with some of my old teammates. And, and I, he and I still talk about that and how much fun we had. So the fans of Pittsburgh were absolutely incredible to me. And uh, the success I had on the ice was awesome, but just the way I was treated was even better.
0: Course you had the windmill celebration, so you were, you know, a guy who drew attention to yourself with your skill and your goal scoring and playing in a line with Mario and all those things, but you also took it one step further. In hockey, you know, I remember Tiger Williams we used to ride his stick, things like that, but there were very few people in the history of this game really who excessively celebrated goals. It's kind of like a code or something in hockey. You're not supposed to do that. But you, you developed the windmill style of uh, celebrating goals. And how did that come about? And how, what, what kind of attention did that draw from your opponents?
1: Um, honestly, I don't know why I started it. <laughs> I, I was in junior hockey. I never did that. I never had excessive celebrations. I know that the, the first time I scored in, in my first game, I, I think I remember jumping up and down. And I don't know when I started doing the windmill, but I know that the first time I did, it got an extra rise out of the crowd. And so I says, "Oh, I score again. Maybe I'll do it again." And that just it became natural. And I do know that it it rubbed opponents the wrong way. And, and that was always part of my game too. I was I was mouthy. Uh, I was not afraid to get in the, the face of other players. I uh tried to get under their skin, and that was just one of the ways to do it. Um, I eventually when I left Pittsburgh, I stopped doing it. Didn't do it again until when I came back at the end of my career. My first goal I scored in my second stint with the Penguins. I remember I was one of the stars that night, and Darius Caspirs was another one, and he's like, You gotta do that window, you got to do that window like seen you do it before, and I remember I went out during my star celebration and did the window, and that's the last time I ever did it.
0: <laughs> well, it's not really the last you did it in the broadcast booth with being with Bobby and me, and you hit your hand on the on the ceiling of the booth. You remember I felt so bad you cracked your hand really. <laughs>
1: I almost broke my head trying to do a TV interview. Yeah, that. <laughs> that was so and funny. I've seen the video of it. The video was hilarious.
0: It was. It was really good. So, Ron Hextall chased you around the ice one night uh, in a playoff game when you did it. Um, I'm sure that's, that thing has taken on a life of its own because it's on YouTube and people always bring it up. But uh, And it's shown often, I'm sure. Uh, could you just kind of recount that whole situation? And have you had any interaction with Hextall since that happened?
1: I've never talked to him. I'm not sure he's a great fan of mine. <laughs> um, I heard he's a lot calmer when he's up in the press box than he was on the ice. it's uh, for how, how I, was, I think that was the the ninth goal in a playoff game, and I think it made it like nine two. At that point, was a blowout. I think the game ended up a lot closer. I think they came back, made it nine seven or something along that line. Yes. But he, he was just frustrated. And I remember I was in the corners. I had my hands. Up. I had not even started doing any celebration, and Dan Quinn was coming to to give me a hug and a high five. And I'm looking over his shoulder, and just before Danny Quinn got there, I took off because I could see Hextall coming with a stick <laughs> up over his head, and I'm like, "There's no way." I am going to be there. I've seen Ron Hextall two-hand guys. I played or I lived in Emerson when he was doing it in the playoffs against the Oilers. I'm not taking that. And the thing that sucks is he got pulled after that, and I think Kenny Reagan came in and Kenny Reagan stole uh, Game Seven against us. So, Unfortunately, that uh, is
0: the that is a fact. In fact, we always look back at that game like 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 they gained momentum in that game by having a really good comeback, not winning. But it was kind of like it sent them on the right path towards a comeback in the series, you know.
1: Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. And and then having Ron Extell out for the, the final game, you're thinking, all right, maybe it took a, a little bit of steam out of us, thinking, oh, okay, they've lost their starter. they got this backup in there, and then and Kenny Reggett stood on his head. So it was disappointing. As for the, the, the video, I run hockey schools up here. I work at sports academies. And every kid once they hear that I play in the NHL, they Google me. And... Uh, as much as there's, a, 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 I've scored almost 200 goals in the NHL. The only googles that ever come up on me are me getting knocked out when I play for the Chicago Blackhawks, and Ron Hextall chasing me. <laughs> and I've got, I've had every kid that I've ever, every goaltending kid I've ever coached in the last. 15 years at some point during the season tries to chase me down the ice to see if he can catch me, just like Ronnie Eckstall did.
0: Brownie, you uh, had to be traded away from the Penguins at a time when they were on the precipice of winning a Stanley Cup. And looking back on it, you ended up coming back to Pittsburgh the following year as a member of the Chicago Blackhawks and losing to the Penguins when they won their second of back-to-backs. What was that like, that whole process of having to say goodbye to Pittsburgh and then coming back only you know really a year and a half later uh and and you know losing to the team you had played for.
1: Getting traded was tough. It it was sad. I mean I grew up in Pittsburgh and, and I had some incredible friends, you know, the Kevin Stevens, the Mark Reckies, the John Collins, uh that were all broken in at the same time. And then I had had the opportunity to play with, you know, the greatest and Mario and 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 Paul Coffey was there who I grew up idolizing. So I had so many friends in Pittsburgh and leaving was hard and and i understood it's a part of the game and new coaching staff comes in and uh different they like a different style of player uh so that it was hard it was an emotional time for me going to Hartford and then eventually when i came back in the finals i'm thinking okay this is going one of two ways this could be a storybook a finish for me going back and beating the team that i i, I left or it could turn out like it did uh where the Pittsburgh Penguins go on win their second cup, and and I'm sitting there watching my buddies celebrate again. And, and it was bittersweet because I was so happy for all my teammates, my ex-teammates and buddies that I knew and buddies that had gone to war with, but it was sad for the fact, that, the fact that I wasn't over there doing it or I didn't have that opportunity to raise a cup over my, over my head. So it, it was tough, I, but I guess if I was going to lose to a team, if I was going to make the finals and not win, then I obviously would have wanted all my buddies to have that opportunity again.
0: Brownie, you uh, dated Alyssa Milano, and I have to ask you about that because she's become so famous. And you know, I know that she was a star in the making at that time. But are you amazed at what her career has become over all these years?
1: No, no, I don't think so. I think she's an incredibly intelligent uh, young lady that um, uh, is is more than just um, someone that you see on TV. I mean, she she got into to activism into uh, making things better for for women in the world, so no, I'm not surprised at all, and in good honor. So I, I do see her quite a bit nowadays on TV, and uh, hopefully, what she's doing is progressing uh, the women's movement and, and and Me Too.
0: How did you meet her, Rob?
1: It was it was neat. It was I was just it was I think it was my rookie season in Pittsburgh, and one of our players, I think it was Jim Johnson's agent, was also the agent for Tony Danza, I think. And we went and watched them film uh, Who's the Boss? So it was kind of cool. We went on set and, and and watched them, and we met all the actors and actresses on stage. And uh, somewhere, I don't even know where it is anymore, I think I gave it to my grandfather. We had a picture of us all sitting on the stage or on the set, and, and they gave it to us and had it blown up for us. So it was, it was really, really cool. So it, it was neat. It was just uh, seeing a different world. Hollywood is. Much different than the hockey world that that I grew up in, but it was just neat being part of it for a small time.
0: And your family life has been interesting because you had some challenges uh, with your one of your uh, children. And could you talk about that? What it's meant to you, and how uh, you know it has maybe changed you as a person or affected you uh, as a dad uh, and a person?
1: Yeah, we we had twins uh, just right on as I ended my career in Pittsburgh. My, my wife and I gave, or my wife gave birth to twins. And uh, w- about a year and a half, or just under a year and a half uh, after they were born, we found out that my daughter had autism. And then all of a sudden it became a different journey for us. Uh, the only thing I ever knew about autism was uh, the movie Rain Man. And, and I'm like, oh, my God, what what have we got ourselves into here? Yeah. And so I, I've learned so much. And uh, i learned to appreciate every day. I've learned, obviously, patience. Uh, I've learned to respect, and, and my daughter, I think, has taught me more than I've taught her. So uh, the reason we retired, or I retired was it was a lot of work uh, for us with a, with a young autistic child to go along with her twin brother, and being a hockey player, you're on the road a lot. and It was just too much for my wife, so we moved home, and it's been awesome. My daughter is doing well. She goes to a normal school. What's her name? She has an aide with her. Her name is Annie.
2: Mm-hmm. I got
1: Annie and Ben Brown. So my daughter's got an 8 at school all the time with her, and she's doing incredible. And it's, it, there's trying days, there's tiring days, but I, I wouldn't trade a single second of my life with my kids that I've had, and I feel very fortunate that uh, both my kids are healthy right now, and we're enjoying uh, enjoying family life in the tundra of Edmonton, Alberta.
0: Did you know Myron Cope at all when you were in Pittsburgh?
1: I do remember Myron very, very well. He was with the Steelers.
0: He was very active, you know, with autism because he had an autistic son.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. It's Mm -hmm. it's amazing. Once you you get into the the world of autism, you start, people say, oh, did you know so-and-so and and -and so-and-so? I played uh, with a guy named Byron Defoe, who was a goalie for the Boston Bruins. He's best friends with Oli Kozik. So they were best friends, best men at each other's weddings, and they both have a son that's autistic. So there, it's amazing how many people out there that, that, that do you know it. Like when we came back here, my wife actually started a, a group called the Quirky Mums Group, and it was all mums of kids with autism. It would meet once a month, month just to, you know, decompress and sit around and drink wine and tell stories and see how things could get better and what they're trying and what we're trying. So it's, uh, it, it has been incredible. We've, we've been to a bunch of autism gal, autism galas. My wife has been a, the, the spokesperson at them, and... and it, it it has given us purpose and our purpose now is to, to make sure that we raise two two incredibly young children and they're now seventeen years old and so far we, we're succeeding, I believe.
0: Are your parents both still living?
1: Uh, they are, yep. Yeah. My mother she lives right here in town in St Albert where we're from. My father, he lives in Surrey D C. My dad just retired. He was the he worked for the Edmonton Oilers for the last, I think, fifteen years as a scout. So he's now part of the Vancouver Giants junior franchise in the Western Hockey League. So yeah, they're still around.
0: And his he was a GM of was it Kamloops?
1: What? The Kamloops yeah. Yeah, that's he what I thought. Was the most successful general manager in the history of the Canadian Hockey League. Wow. He won three Memorial Cups in four years. I can't believe I can't remember what his winning percentages as a GM, but it was something like six or seven hundred percent. And he's had he's hired three coaches: Ken Hitchcock. Tom Rennie and Dong Hay, all three went on to coach into the NHL, and he's had the Jerome Ginlas, the Niedermeyers, the Tyson Nashes. He's done pretty good with his uh, evaluation of young players.
0: Man, that's that just must be cool to have a guy like that for a dad. You know, when you're in the hockey, you're into hockey, and you have a guy like that you can lean on who knows the game the way he does.
1: He does, and it is not so much for when things are going good. It was it was good to have him when things were, uh, when things were tough. When I was going, to I remember. He was the one that, when I first got sent down to the minors, I was really down. And I'm like, I didn't know, you know, do I want to keep playing hockey? Is this where I want to be? And, and I, I wasn't happy with the, the coach that had sent me down. It was in Chicago. And my dad said, you know, think about it. Do you, is this how you want it to end? Do you want someone else to tell you that you're not good enough? And we had this long heart-to-heart talk about it. And I'm like, you know what? No, I don't. I'm going to go out on my terms. And that's when I decided that I wanted to be the best player in the world, who wasn't in the NHL, and then we'll see where it fell after that. And then I started having a ton of success in the minors and enjoyed myself. But having my dad there uh, certainly made a huge difference. I don't know where I would have been had my father not sat me down and had that talk.
0: Brownie, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, what it's like to be working in Edmonton and watching Connor McDavid uh, after you had played alongside of Mario Lemieux. And you had watched Wayne Gretzky as a kid uh, for probably as many games as you could in, in those days. You've seen the greatest, been uh, you've played with them, and now you're you're analyzing them because you're on between periods in Edmonton Oilers broadcasts. So what are your impressions, and what's it like to have been part of all that? You know, in different times of your life.
1: Well, I, I feel very fortunate. I, I, I got to for four years. I got to ski alongside Mario Lemieux, and at that point. I mean, he and Gretzky were the two in the best in the world. And there's things that Mario could do that Wayne couldn't. And, and I was fortunate. And I, I mean, as much as it was amazing in games, just to see the silly stuff he was capable of doing in practice. And, and I learned so much from that. And now here I am at Edmonton. And it's funny, I I was doing Oiler games for the last 13 years. And I remember when I'd have buddies, like Eddie Olchek would come in from Chicago. I'm like, what's it like watching Kane and Paves play all the time? And then I'd see Borky... And Bobby Erie and you, when you come in with Pittsburgh, like, what's it like seeing Crosby and Malkin playing all the time? Well, now I know what it's like because I'm watching Connor do it. And what he's capable of doing, so very few, if any, in the world can do it. All the great ones in the league now, the Malkins, the Crosbys, the Canes, the Matthews, they're all above everyone else. And Connor can do everything they can do, except he does it 100 miles an hour. And that's what's so amazing is, in a game, when you sit in the press box and Connor McDavid a, ball, a puck bounces, and you look down from up top, the guy has got a 15 foot head start on Connor McDavid, and you're thinking, Yep, Connor's going to get a breakaway here. Wow. And defensemen they turn to skate forward when Connor's coming down on them because they know they can't keep up to him. They skate backwards. It is absolutely amazing. So I've been fortunate to live through the generational players of a, a Gretzky and a and play with and against them. And now here I am every night watching Connor McDavid. I don't know if he'll ever reach the scoring records that those other players set because of the way the league is now. But he can dominate just as well as any of those guys did in their heyday.
0: And, you know, you have a firsthand feel for what the pressure or what the uh, the scrutiny is of a player like him in terms of team success. I mean, you know – Mario went through seven years before he was able to win a cup and went through a lot of torture along the way. And people saying, well, Gretzky was better. You know, his team won the cups. No one really seemed to put enough emphasis on the players he was surrounded with. Are the Oilers ever going to fulfill what the destiny should be for a guy like Connor McDavid, do you think?
1: Well, if it doesn't happen soon, there's going to be a lot more changes here in management and coaching. Uh, the pressure is on, and right now the pressure is not on Connor McDavid. Uh, and I know, and I do know what you're talking about with Mario. You're never going to be as great as Wayne until you win. And they all talked about that, and I didn't believe it. But that's the way a lot of people judge careers. Up here in Edmonton, no one's talking about that because Connor McDavid is so good, and he is carrying this team and franchise on his back. The pressure for him to be a champion is on the GM and the coach. And that's where it's coming from. And if, uh, there's so much uh, fear, stress in Edmonton right now that this isn't going to come to fruition this year. That it might be another non-playoff team with the greatest player in the league on it. And there, there will be a lot of changes if the Edmonton Oilers don't become a an elite team in the next year or so. But right now the pressure is not there for Connor because. While well, he just started the season, the first nine goals of the year, he had a point on for the Edmonton Oilers. He is the Edmonton Oilers right now. It's now up to Peter Shirelli and, and Tom McClellan to surround him with enough support that can get him to the next level, and not the Stanley Cup.
0: Before you go, Brown, are you thinking of writing a book? Me? <laughs> I think you should. I think you should write a book because you are so good at expressing things and you have a very interesting career of ups and downs and you know the situation with your family and your dad having been in the business uh, all those years. And I'm sure there. I could stay on the phone with you for three hours and I'll bet we haven't even scratched the surface. You probably have a ton of great stories you could tell about your time in Pittsburgh. And the only thing I can tell you is you've always been a favorite of the people that were associated with the Penguins in those days because of the person you are and I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on our podcast.
1: Oh, I appreciate you having me on. I, Pittsburgh has got a very, very big spot in my heart. I loved it there. I really did love the people there, Love my time there. And anytime you guys want to talk to me, I'm here for you.
0: We'd love to have you on every now and then. And, um, you know, of course, the Penguins are coming out west. And uh, make sure you say hi to Bobby when he comes through uh, in Edmonton and Borky and, and all, the, all the guys that will be traveling through there.
1: I will do that for sure.
0: Brownie, thank you very much. All the best to you. And uh, once again, uh, just a real thrill to talk to you. Thanks
1: a lot, Daggy. You take care.
0: We hope you enjoyed this edition of It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. Our thanks again to Rob Brown, Bob Airy, Paul Coffee, and, of course, Mario Lemieux, the man who got 199 points back in 88-89. This is Paul Steigerwald, and we'll talk to you next time.